Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Content to Classroom, a podcast produced by the Virginia Council for the Social Studies with the goal of providing teachers across the state and beyond with a reliable resource for social studies-based content and strategies for how to bring that content into your classroom. I'm your host, Sam Futrell, and thank you so much for joining me. I hope that everybody has had a pleasant January so far and is staying safe out there. COVID-19 may still be raging here in Virginia, but teachers are finally starting to get vaccinated. Hallelujah. In addition to that, since I last spoke to you all, we were able to watch a peaceful transition of presidential power last Wednesday as President Biden took office. If you listened to our last episode, the C-SPAN education team and I explored presidential transitions of power in depth, and you know that we were concerned as to how this transition would go, but thankfully all was well. Today, we are leaving the United States for a bit to talk about international relations and the European Union. On this episode, I was joined by two guests from the John Monet Center at Virginia Tech, Janusz Tivaktis and Colin Baker. Giannis is a professor of political science at Virginia Tech, where he also serves as associate department chair, director of international studies program, and university coordinator for the diplomacy lab program. He was also recently awarded the Jean Ramey chair in recognition of excellence in European Union studies by the European Commission, Education, Audiovisual, and Cultural Executive Agency. Colin Baker served as our master teacher for this episode. He currently teaches AP European History in Blacksburg, Virginia, and serves as the Assistant Director for Education and Outreach of the Jean Monnet Center in Virginia Tech, where they are doing some incredibly exciting things that you will hear us discuss in this episode. I enjoyed interviewing Colin and Giannis so much, despite the fact that their lovely and refined European accents definitely made my North Carolinian heritage sign just a little too much for my taste, but it was overall so much fun, um, and I really learned so much about the European Union, and I think that whether you teach European history, modern world history, global politics, government of any kind, um, international relations, this episode is going to be so helpful for how to actually teach and apply studies about the European Union into your classroom. So without further ado, Janis Duvaktis and Colin Baker from Virginia Tech. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Content to Classroom. I am extremely excited about this episode and the guests that we have here tonight uh, from uh, the Center for European Union, Transatlantic, and Trans-European Space Studies at Virginia Tech, uh, which is quite the mouthful. And we are absolutely thrilled to have both of you on. So Giannis and Colin, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Let's just dive right in. Janice, could you tell us a little bit about your background, including what you teach at Virginia Tech and how you became interested in studying the European Union? Okay, thank you very much for the question. Uh, my full name is Janis Tivaktis. I was born in Greece. Uh, my, I finished my bachelor degree with specialization in international studies and then carried on for a graduate certificate in international law. And then I went to UK, Lancaster University, to pursue a Master of Arts in International Relations and Strategic Studies. 
and then a PhD in politics and international relations. Uh, after I completed my studies, I moved to Switzerland and my first position was a research fellow at the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. And I was dealing with the Euro Mediterranean Partnership at that time. And I was involved in the research program pertaining to the Middle East security. It was the good times back then where the uh, Arab-Israeli peace process was working very well. Uh, after I finished my three-year tenure, I moved to Vienna and I became research fellow for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, and then I started working with the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy. Uh, then I went back to Switzerland. I taught uh, at the American College of Switzerland and then I was professor at the Geneva School of Diplomacy International Relations until 2005 when I crossed the Atlantic and I came to Virginia Tech. Um, I was, and I'm still the director of the International Studies Program at the Department of Political Science. Uh, I'm teaching international politics and security studies, both uh, national security and international security with focus on European security. Uh, also, I'm the director of the Diplomacy Lab program. Wow, you have been busy. You've done a lot of things. <laughs> really I amazing. Have to, you know, I'm paid by the, the Virginia taxpayers. I have to do it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. We are very glad that you're here. We really appreciate you. And we are excited to talk to you today. Um, Colin, what about you? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your connection to Virginia Tech and this very exciting program that... Um, Giannis is directing there. Yes, definitely. Well, good evening. My name is Colin Baker. I am a European as well. I was born in Scotland and uh, graduated from the University of Edinburgh. Um, my, I guess my formative years when I was a young teen was during the Thatcher years. Universities had a different kind of feel back then. They were not open. Um, uh, you had to get a certain degree, uh, certain qualifications even to get into university. So it was tough um, for a job market as well. It was interesting afterwards. Uh, I decided after I graduated and I got a master's of politics and modern history that I wanted to come and work in the United States. And I wanted to pursue a post or a graduate degree here uh, in the US. And so I looked around the East Coast because that would be easier for me to come back visit my family. Um, I particularly looked at places that already had a number of international students in them. So I came here in the, in the mid nineties and studied at uh, Old Dominion University, uh, Norfolk, had a master's of education there. Um, and then I was looking for jobs and I didn't want to teach in an area that was a big urban area because Norfolk's pretty urban and Edinburgh where I was from was an urban area. So I, I looked up and down the I-81 corridor looking for places that had colleges in it, thinking, oh, they'll know more about bloody foreigners if, uh, if uh, I can have, at least have heard about visas and other things. So uh, Blacksburg was actually the first school I interviewed at uh, who offered me a position. And, and so I came here in 97. Um, 
and I've been teaching at Blasper High School ever since then. Um, I actually almost came here a couple of years before that when I got, uh, when I was at Edmund University, I got offered a position at University of Pennsylvania, uh, but I decided not to accept that just based on other things. But I always had an interest in coming like Giannis to the United States to study. Um, so I did work out and I, I came here since 1995, met a local girl and like Giannis settled down in, in this area. Um, since then, I've, I've managed to, my career's kind of gone in different directions as well. I've still been teaching, but I've also got quite a lot involved with the college board in the last five or six years. And I am the co-chair of the AP European History Development Committee, um, leading the exam and the reading and the scoring of the exams every year nationally. And, and so that's taken me in conferences around the country and I've had the opportunity to do federal grants back to Europe a couple of times uh, to France and to uh, National Archives in London. And so education has been a great giver. Uh, it's allowed me to do all sorts of interesting projects. And just recently, I would say the last two, two and a bit years, I met Giannis. Um, I already knew several people at Virginia Tech because of course in the same town as, as Blacksburg High School. Um, but I was interested in doing something different with my AP European history students. Uh, this was at the time of Brexit. Of course, we're still sort of in the time of Brexit even right now, but it's certainly very topical several years ago. It just had happened. Um, and I wanted to like seize the teachable moment and expose my students to more than just a regular curriculum. So I got in touch with some people at Virginia Tech, which led me to Giannis and we've been running a symposium uh, for AP, AP European history teachers. Uh, and students, excuse me, but now we're thinking of doing programs for teachers and uh, other educators in the state. And of course, I was very interested when he said he was setting up or applying for a Jean Monnet Center. And so I've got involved in that in the last nine months or so, which is fantastic because that's exploded in potential and interest as well. So that's where we are at the moment. Wow, that's amazing. I think you both have pretty uh, surreal jobs. Um, <laughs> I think I think a lot of people listening today would be pretty jealous of you um, and would definitely be interested in hearing more about just all of the amazing opportunities you've been involved in. So uh, thank you both for being here. Well, uh, let's just get started. Uh, Giannis, I think today with talking about the European Union, it might be best to just start simply. Uh, some of our listeners might need a little bit of a refresher. Um, so what is the European Union and why was it created? Thank you. Uh, the European Union is an international organization, uh, but there's a specific type of international organization in the sense that its member states have decided to give part of their sovereignty to this supranational organization. So it's not just an intergovernmental organization. It's something more than that. And therefore, it's not so easy as people imagine for states to be in a kind of supranational organization and for states that they love their sovereignty and therefore deciding to give part of it in order to create something more that the sum of the states. So for instance, if you have United Nations, you have 193 states, that's okay. 
but it's not something more than that. European Union is 27 today member states plus something else. And this something else is not so easy to be done and to be achieved. Now, we have to understand also, because people uh, probably don't understand, uh, the fact that European Union is a supranational organization doesn't mean that decides in itself about everything. There are areas in which the European Union has absolute comp competence to decide, but there are areas in which the European Union cannot do anything because the, its member states decide to deal themselves in those issues. However, there are uh, cases, situations, where the states feel that do not have the capacity to deal with some issues and therefore ask the European Union to involve. And then we, ha we have what we call shared competences. So again, uh, people should not think that the European Union is like the United States and therefore the European Commission is the federal government. It's not like that. Some things can be done at the European Union level, some things can all be done at the state level, and some things can be done in collaboration between the European Union and its member states. So what would be an example of something that the group has the ability to control um, and something that it doesn't? Yes, very good question. For instance, the regulation of the internal market of, you know, since there are no borders, how uh, services, uh, labor and products circulated and under which conditions, all the regulations are provided by the European Union. However, when we move into the area, let's say of foreign security policy, this is something that the states like to keep very close to themselves. Another example that let's say the refugee crisis. Uh, usually states do not like in, or didn't like the European Union to deal with issues pertaining to their borders. But since states like Italy or especially Greece didn't have the capacity to deal with the refugee crisis, then they had to bring in the European Union and therefore set share competencies in how to deal with this issue. Arguably, and you can disagree with this, um, but arguably the European Union was founded as a regional solution to international threats. Those threats being the spread of nationalism and communism in the post-World War II world. But the EU did not grow as rapidly as the UN did. Uh, and in fact, most of the 27 countries that now comprise the EU did not join until the fall of the Berlin Wall. And again, if I'm saying anything incorrect, please feel free to jump in. But what factors do you think contributed to the EU's slow growth? And why was it different and so, um, so much slower than the UN? And Sam, you were absolutely right. Uh, and your questions are very important here. Um, I'd like to go a little bit back. Uh, who speak about a united Europe. But the idea of the united Europe was not a product of the 20th century. If you go back in history, 
during the 19th century, we had political philosophers as well as politicians speaking about the United Europe or the Grand Republic of Europe. But again, it was very difficult to deal with the political realities of the 19th century. We knew that the two of the most important countries of the European continent didn't have very good relations with, with one another, France and Germany. So one of the you know, reasons that probably uh, the European Union uh, was uh, as an idea in the post-World War II era uh, came into existence is because, first of all, to address this Franco-German hostility. Uh, you couldn't have uh, a European order stability without addressing this, especially in the presence of the Soviet threat. However, uh, before that and during World War II, uh, Jean Monnet, who was is considered to be as one of the founding fathers of the European Union, uh, was a French diplomat as well as involved in trade. Uh, it was the one that uh, had two ideas. The first idea is that the future of Europe would be inextricably related to the peace of the world. And this required a collaboration between the United States and the European countries. The second idea was that unlike the United States which is a very big country or the Soviet Union, Germany or France or Italy, all these countries were very small and there will be no future for Europe as a whole unless they could come together and form a much larger entity. Therefore being more competitive in world affairs. You mentioned United Nations. The United Nations is a, a global institution, very inclusive, in the sense that you had both the two superpowers involved, negotiated this organization, and therefore the satellite states and the, and the states them, themselves, the great powers, became members. So it was easy. It's also an intergovernmental organization. They didn't have to give part of the sovereignty. Actually, they had to exercise the veto power. So if the five members of the Security Council, but especially the superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States didn't want something to happen. It was very difficult to happen. Uh, Europe, however, was just a continent and the continent was also divided. So you cannot have a, a European economic community that could keep all Europe together because the whole idea was to have specific countries with specific values and particular approach to economy and politics. Half of the Europe was automatically out of the question because it was under the Soviet rule. Then we had Britain that didn't want to be part of the union because they want to be always a kind of uh, the, the balancer of what happens in Europe. Traditional balance of power that the uh, United Kingdom, Great Britain or whatever, comes from outside and decides how the game is played. But we have other cases too. Spain was still an autocratic fascist country. Franco was there and so was Portugal. So you didn't have so many states to join. And do not forget, we had Switzerland that want to be a neutral state. We had Austria who had to be a neutral state. We had Finland who had to be a neutral state. Sweden as well. So there were not so many states left 
to become members. Unless we have important developments and we have these developments towards the end of the 80s and early 90s with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, as you very correctly mentioned, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then we have the changes. Giannis is touching so many good things, but one thing I'd just like to mention that, that is kind of a thread running through all of this and who joins the EU early and who waits till later, like Britain, like Giannis saying, is the whole idea of the nation state and how you perceive and value the nation state. So countries like France and Germany were dealing after World War II with, with fascism and France with you know, surrender and collaboration. And Eastern Europeans were dealing with, you know, they couldn't join at the time because they're dealing with communism. And there's a sense that our nation state has, is, has had problems that we have not able to succeed or overcome. Um, and so therefore moving beyond the nation state to being involved in a collective supranational organization is a good thing because we don't put all our value in the single nation state. Um, whereas the authoritarian countries like you mentioned, Spain and Portugal and, and Greece, and, and even Britain, Britain of course was, was a country that, that won World War II. So it kind of sees uh, benefit in the nation state. Our nation state's a great thing because look what we did in World War II, we helped to defeat Hitler. So there's a hankering in Britain to the glories of the nation state and the old ideas of empire that's still hanging around. That's definitely affected Brexit. Um, and so Britain never really saw true value in diving into fully in the anyway, at least not politically, definitely economically, but not politically into this supranational organization because they were still perhaps like the United States, still valuing a lot that this, the role and power of their nation state. Whereas the continental Europeans saw greater value in moving above that and beyond that to something more collective that, that could help heal. Um, and that's a, an issue in the, in the formation and development of the EU. May I add something here? Uh, we should not forget that for other states to join the European Union, the existing members have to accept that the others have to join. In the case of the UK, France was not very reluctant to have UK as member of the European Economic Community, especially under President de Gaulle. There was no question. De Gaulle conceived because of the special relation between the Great Britain and United States, de Gaulle considered Britain as the spy of the United States in Europe. So that he didn't want to hear about that. It was only after the goal removed from power and some other political changes in the United Kingdom that this became a reality. Otherwise, it couldn't be. So that kind of actually makes me wonder, and this is just a logistical question. Earlier, Giannis, you mentioned uh, with the UN Security Council, and uh, just for our listeners who may not know, and again, if I say anything wrong, y'all feel free to correct me on this, but the five founding members of the Security Council all have veto power um, on any resolutions. Is there veto power in the EU? And then also for a member to join, is it does it have to be unanimous? Uh, I make a correction here. Uh, the United Nations was not founded by the five members. It was founded by the UK, United States, and the Soviet Union. Uh, France was brought in as one of the winners, but was not involved in this. 
The fifth member initially was what we knew as Taiwan, Formosa, uh, and it was only in 1973, after uh, the rapprochement between Beijing and Washington, that we decided to exchange Taiwan with the People's Republic of China. That was not originally involved. Now, going back to the other question, no, as far as the enlargement of the European Union is concerned, has always been a very important issue that required all states to agree. Of course, there will be debates behind the curtains or behind the walls or behind the doors. Uh, there will be a, a kind of um, discussion what the advantages and disadvantages are, but at the end of the day, if a state says, no, I do not agree, you cannot go beyond that. It was back then and will continue to be like that. So does that make it extremely difficult for any sort of progress to happen if uh, states have to agree together on everything? Or, or is there, when you're, they're voting for resolutions, can, uh, can, is there a majority vote or is it always unanimous? Um, again, when we speak about enlargement, this is one of the most important issues. So when the European Council is the most important, if you want, uh, intergovernmental organ of the European Union, they decide in unanimously. Once they decide about something, then it's the European Commission that is given the opportunity to create the law then bring it to the attention of another important intergovernmental body called the Council of the European Union. And then you have a different types of uh, voting system. The voting system has changed throughout times. At this moment, for a regulation or directive to pass or the new law to become, uh, to take place, of course you need the consent of the European Parliament as well. But when you go to the Council of the European Union, you need uh, two thirds of the member states agree and two thirds of the population of the European Union. So it's a kind of double ma majority there. So I think a, a lot of teachers uh, are maybe more familiar with the United Nations than the European Union, just uh, through a lot of different avenues. But Colin, you teach AP European history. So I'm interested to hear, how does the EU connect to your curriculum? And why do you think it's important for students to understand this IGO? Yeah, thanks. It, it appears towards, of course, the end of our curriculum because it's post-1945. But like Yanis said, there's elements of European unity and European identity that appear much earlier in European and indeed in world history, even in US history. Um, so what I also like to do is to bring in um, and relate current events or events in the past to current events and show how there's a definitely a deep connection between the past and the present. The European Union didn't just spring out of thin air after World War II, right? There were <clears throat> there were um, elements of the story that had to come together. So you can teach the EU at the end of your course, or you can actually begin to teach at the start of your course. 
and introduce it as here's a theme. There's an early European unity was a, a common a common Catholic identity, a religious unity in early modern Europe. Um, then moving forward, you have the French Revolution. It's like a secular identity again in the nation state, right? And of course, nationalism is a very powerful force in recent European history. And then the European Union kind of seeks to kind of dampen that down in a sense and, and overcome the worst parts of that. So I, I would like to think that teachers have lots of opportunity to bring in the European Union to their courses way before they get to the post-war period. And certainly there's a lot of, Brexit is a great example, but there's lots of the COVID crisis, the immigration crisis that Yanis mentioned. There's many, many issues today that we're facing in the United States that are similar, Europeans face similar issues or, or related. And you can definitely relate a modern event in Europe to something that's happening here. Uh, with the Middle Eastern unrest in the post 9-11 world has put significant pressure on European countries, uh, both due to just the proximity of the Middle East to Europe um, and uh, a whole handful of other factors as well. So how has the EU responded to threats of terrorist attacks from groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, the revolts during the Arab Spring, and the proxy war between the US, Saudi Arabia, and Russia and Iran? If the European Union would say, I do not speak with the regimes that they don't uh, value human rights, I would understand. But they deal with governments that violate human rights. They live with, they deal with authoritarian governments. So they are not democratic states. And the most complicated thing is with the civil society because civil society in authoritarian states may be very uncivil. So uh, European Union was as an excuse, we have to collaborate with this civil society, but the civil society was nothing more than the puppets of authoritarian governments. So when later on the Arab Spring came, took the Europeans by surprise because people were saying, we are the ones who revolted. We wanted to have democracy. We had to have human rights. And you were the ones collaborating with these governments which were authoritarian, they were corrupting, corrupting. So that was the consistency between the EU rhetoric and practice that eventually led to the uh, 2011 revision of the European neighborhood policy, which again had many problems because the Europeans still couldn't get it easily that the others are not anymore pupils, should be equal partners. In 2015, we have the final revision, or the final revision, the one we have until now, that so far has produced a little better results in the sense that uh, we're more open in uh, listening to what the others have said. Uh, there's more discussion, debates at this moment regarding the application of the EU global strategy in the sense that um, what has been suggested is that uh, we have to value diversity, we have to value human rights or whatever, but the most important part is that each of those states we deal with, they have to demonstrate at least one thing that they will do in order to get our support, but also 
they have to accept that until they do that, we are going to criticize them. So this is a kind of uh, new modus operandi that the European Union has that, you know, dealing with third states. We understand you cannot change everything, but start deciding what to change first and demonstrate it, and then we'll be there for you. Now, going back to terrorism. Terrorism is a very important concept for the Europeans because they had the, before 9-11, we have terrorism in Europe long time ago, internal terrorism. Whether it will be uh, Baden-Meichhoff in Germany, November 17th in Greece, uh, the Red Brigades in Italy and so on and so forth. Uh, Northern Ireland. Yes, yep. I, uh, yes, exactly. So the European experience of how to deal with uh, terrorism uh, is different than what we had with 9-11. Also, uh, there is another case. How do we define terrorism? What do we mean by terrorism? And then there has been a problem within the United Nations, and not only between the, the European Union countries and the United States, but with other countries too. The result, if we go to the Middle East, Hamas, and PLO are not terrorists for the Europeans, but there may be terrorists for the Americans. So there are some things that we have to deal with. Now, the Europeans uh, like to have a particular identity. They consider themselves as a civilian power, as a normative power, not as a military power. They also emphasize intelligence cooperation. It has been very difficult recently, in the sense that uh, national intelligence agencies do not like to share information for many reasons. But because of what happened recently with the terrorist attacks in Europe, we have a much better understanding of what's to be done. So uh, things have been improved. Uh, another issue that they have to deal is not so much what happens outside the Europe but also the increasing radicalization back at home. For instance, why all these European citizens like to join Al-Qaeda or ISIS? And what is going to happen if they come back? How are we going to control that? So these are the questions. It's not so much whether we are going to use the military, the Air Force, or, or you know, what kind of troops in order to deal with ISIS or Al-Qaeda, but some other more practical and more complicated questions. But again, they like to deal with terrorists in a multilateral fashion. I would just say that because the European Union is very concerned about building consensus and it's got 27 different countries with different national agendas, just like Yanis was saying earlier, foreign and security policy is held dear to many. So. The, the policy towards Turkey will be affected largely by what Greece does or doesn't want to do, um, or Austria might not like the Greeks either. But yet in the Mediterranean, you have France with historical ties to parts of North Africa. So they'll want to react in a different way in the French and until recently in, in the EU, the British have, have a stronger military presence and they want to act maybe more aggressively than the Germans would. So to any policy, um, so they all, this. It's, it's a slow moving ship. So often they can't react very quickly to some of these crises. 
But once they do start building consensus, then the European Union tends to, uh, crisis tends to push it together and, and push it in a positive direction. I think we saw that with the immigration crisis and that eventually the EU got its act together and started negotiating with Turkey. Um, and they had to agree in a common crisis that affected not just Hungary and Austria, but Germany and France and Italy and it affected everyone. So had, they were forced into a common policy. Um, and so the EU tends to move slowly, but, but often that's not always a negative thing. That can be a positive case. You know, there's a consensus building that might appear like weakness on the outside. Like Henry Kissinger famously said, you know, if I'm going to call Europe, who, who do we call? Like what one person do we pick up the phone and call, right? And maybe the council president or the commission president, but it's, it's not as, as simple um, as acting decisively in a moment of crisis. The European Union doesn't do that uh, as efficiently as, as perhaps many member states would like, but eventually it will come up with a consensus policy that, that all member states can live with. And I think COVID is a good example of something that the European Union has, has learned from and it's adapted to. It's, it's got a, for the very first time, it's issued as a collective body rather than individual countries. The European, European Commission has, has issued a bonds as debt and it's, it's got a 750 billion euro recovery fund. For the very first time, this is not, German money or Greek or Italian, it's a European uh, recovery fund. So it's stepping into, um, it's something's been referred to the Hamiltonian moment, right? The kind of centralization of debt, right? Um, back in early US history. So that's something brand new the European Union has never done before. Um, a lot of this money uh, is going to the countries that are most affected by COVID, particularly at the start of Spain and Italy. Um, and a lot of the European money is going to, um, I think it's called COVAX or Gavi. It's that it's it's not it's an international group of, of um, uh, organization to help send vaccine not just to European or developed countries, but to the developing world. And the European Union realizes that this is an international problem. Sure, if we could get everyone vaccinated in Europe or North America, but that wouldn't deal with COVID, we need to get the whole world vaccinated. So we, it helps us to build consensus and to invest in, in something that's outside of Europe, just like Janice was saying, um, in India, in Africa, in Asia, and the countries that can't afford the vaccines like the developed countries can. Um, and so the EU is very much supporting that financially as well. So that's a new development for the EU to, to issue common debt to do things like that. It's something to go back to what Colin said. Thank you for mentioning that, Colin. Uh, the European Union is not so much afraid of having a country attacking it, but it's very sensitive to other types of threats coming from its periphery or even further apart. So they do understand that uh, diseases is a kind of threat and diseases will come from other parts of the world. So we have to invest in what happens in the other parts of the world before it comes here. We have to invest in making strong states in Middle East and North Africa. Before, if they are not strong states, we have civilian unrest, we have civil strifes, 
we have refugees, we come to Europe. So this is the approach of how to deal to help things happening outside Europe in order to help Europe and protect its security. Mm. That's really interesting too, because uh, if they're investing in beating, you know, COVID around the world, it's also they're investing in, you know, tourism and bringing people into Europe. And that's really one of the sectors that has been extremely hit by COVID um, and been really devastating to uh, really conglomerates like the European Union. So it's interesting that this is this is the first time, if I heard you correctly, Colin, that they have consolidated debt like this? Yes. Oh, wow. Uh, do you think this is a trend that they're going to continue? Well, what's interesting about what they've done, too, is if there are, like Yanis was talking about, European Union can sometimes be two-faced or uh, project, say one thing, but do something slightly different. There are some countries, even in the EU, that don't always... Uh, ha- don't always follow the rule of law and promote liberty as much as possible. And recently, that's perhaps been Hungary and Poland, um, who tend or tend to edge- edging towards authoritarian governments. But what the EU has done with this uh, debt uh, issuing is tied it. The distribution of the funds have been tied to following all the EU principles and guidelines and rules of law. So that if countries like Poland and Hungary do not do these things, have an independent judiciary and other things, then the EU Commission can actually withhold funds from them, the, the COVID relief funds that they really, really want, right? And that's one of those majorities, the qualified majorities that Janis talked about. So, so in other words, Hungary and Poland can't veto that, right, by themselves. If there's enough of a majority of the European Union countries, they can actually uh, act against some of their own members in that sense. So. Uh, so what that's reinforcing is that maybe here you've got two things tied together. You've got European debt, but the implementation, the, de- the, the delivery of that debt is being tied to European values, right? So the Europeans are being held to their own values, um, which is something that I think is pretty interesting as well. That's kind of uh, the newer step for the European Union as well, to actually walk the walk as well as talking the talk in this case. Yeah, kind of moving away from that rhetoric versus practice, you know, actually following through with uh, what you were saying earlier. So, Colin, just kind of going off of that, I guess, what are the current goals of the European Union and how does the, and we kind of have already touched on this a little bit, but how does the EU function with other organizations um, even just logistically, I'm, I'm sort of curious about that. Uh, I know, I mean, obviously with the UN, there are different groups within the UN that function inside of Europe, um, but how does the EU sort of coordinate or even not coordinate with uh, those organizations? Well, I'm sure Giannis can probably develop a, a deeper thought than this, but do I, have, I could just actually read you a quote from the commission president, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, and she actually deals with these things. This is in uh, The Economist this, this last week. So it's a really short quote. She says, this is how I see the European Union's mission in today's world. We have a unique asset, our convening or consensus power. 
As a union of 27 sovereign countries, we have an unparalleled diplomatic network. We are trusted interlocker for international organizations and NGOs, non-government organizations. We can reach out to countries that will not even talk to each other and rally them around a common cause. We are team builders by vocation. And in the quest for a vaccine, we've put our convening power at the service of all nations. So I think that kind of sums up in a sense the EU likes to work with the UN. It likes to promote um, UN events. It works with the WHO. Um, it has a close relationship with NATO, um, which they developed almost hand in hand there. So it's, it's easier for the EU to be a team player because that is the nature of the EU. Um, I don't know if Giannis wants to develop that further, but. Yeah, uh, as a result of the Lisbon Treaty of 2009, uh, the European Union has a legal personality in itself. It's equivalent to a state personality, which means in practice that they have created the European External Action Service, which is the diplomatic core of the European Union. As a result, there will be European delegations attached to any country in the world. Like we have the EU delegation in Washington representing the EU to the US government, but also will be EU delegations slash missions that are attached to various international organizations. So we are going to have an EU delegation slash mission in New York dealing with the United Nations. The same thing happens with, in Geneva, happens in uh, Vienna, wherever there are international organizations. Uh, in terms of how to come into contact with uh, non-state actors or in the government organizations, there are other structures created. As far as the civil society and non-governmental organizations concern, uh, we may have the um, European Social Committee, an economic committee, which is equivalent to the United Nations Economic and Social Council. Uh, we may have the Committee of Regions uh, and other formal and let's say less formal ways of doing that. Uh, whenever there's an agreement with a third state or international organization, uh, we, the treaties themselves also uh, provide of possibilities of transnational uh, or government to civil society uh, collaboration. So uh, there are different ways of doing that. So with the Lisbon Treaty of 2009, things have changed. Uh, the European Union has created a new type of network and that's what explains what Vardelainen was saying in the statement that Colin uh, read. So in practice, it's very easy for the European Union to reach every country. And for instance, the United States cannot speak to Iran, but the European Union can speak to Iran. The European Union can speak to easily to North Korea. Some other countries cannot speak to North Korea. So it's, they can play a very important role. Yeah, and Yanis mentioned the EU delegations, just to bring this down to a really local level, something that's very practical for, for teachers in Virginia. Um, 
Blacksburg High School is actually uh, doing a project right now with the EU delegation in, in Washington, DC. And, and one of our missions at, at the new Jean Monnet Center at Virginia Tech, and that's kind of where my prim, one of my primary roles there, is to bring the EU kind of down to a local level and, and um, educate Virginia educators. And even we've had programs for high school students as well. And so to show that the EU is involved and is interested in what's happening in Virginia. And likewise, Virginia students can be interested and learn about what's happening in the EU. And there's definitely um, programs that we're developing that, and programs are already uh, going that, that will promote that. Um, and we're gonna roll out some of these this year. So hopefully there's a place on the VCSS website that we can release the program of our information coming up. Absolutely. Yeah, I would love for you to talk about any of those programs if um, if you would like to. And I also, I guess that also kind of connects to the question that I'm interested in hearing from you as a teacher. You know, one of these concepts that we've been talking about and that is really sort of critical for uh, anyone working in the European Union and these states in the European Union is diplomacy. So how do you teach diplomacy in your classroom, Colin? And I, I'm also curious, have you ever used any uh, simulations like Model UN or done something like, and I don't even know if this exists, but Model European Union, where you kind of have the kids uh, serve and simulate as uh, ambassadors to the European Union? Well, that seems such like a set, a set up question. And I promise the listeners that we have not discussed this before, but that is no, how we I, have it. We <laughs> have it. That is how I first met Giannis. That is exactly what we've been doing for two years. Um, we've been running a model EU council simulation at Virginia Tech. Um, that's how I first got involved with uh, what will what has become the Jean Monnet Center there. Um, so I, my, in the first year, we did this two years ago. I had uh, about 70 students, AP European history students from Blacksburg High School. They, uh, we split them into, at that point, 28, because Britain was still in the EU, um, member states. And each state had, about, I think, three or four representatives. So you have the head of state, and then you have like, an ambassador and a, a lower level kind of negotiator. And we had them research a specific issue. The issue at that time was about immigration. How is the EU going to react to the Syrian civil war and the immigration crisis. And each group had to collaborate and go and come up with a position statement. And we, that wasn't the only thing we did at this conference. We, we also gave them some sessions with various Virginia Tech professors in the morning. But in the afternoon, they had to uh, have a council debate, an EU council debate. And we elected a, a council president who oversaw and a commission president and we tried to give them a structure and, and help them out. And it went fantastically well. And all the students had a, an amazing reaction to it. And they did finally come up with a proposal. Some of the smaller countries uh, had enough for a qualified majority. And um, uh, so that was, that was two years ago. This last year, we expanded our program to four high schools regionally in Southwest Virginia, in Montgomery County, and also in Roanoke County. Um, and they'd spent an entire year preparing the same thing. Uh, each school had uh, four or five, six or seven actually, um, member states, um, and they prepared a position. 
our, one of our positions was, what's the EU going to do with Poland and, and Hungary? Because they're violating EU principles. And, and of course, one or two of the countries were Poland and Hungary. So they had to like defend themselves in the EU, right? Um, and they were all set to do this. And then this was in March last year and COVID shut us down like three days before we were about to have our conference. Um, they'd spent the whole year preparing, uh, but I'm sure it would have been a fantastic event. And they still got a lot out of it because they prepared so, so well in the year. And we'd actually expanded this, not just to four schools, but to two days or a day and a half conference. So our plan in this next year, this fall, hopefully if we're back full time in, the, in 2021, 22, is to restart this program and pick it up where we left off and try and expand it even more. And, and one of the other people at the center suggested, why don't you try and expand this throughout the different areas of Virginia as well? So that's the long-term goal, but we're gonna try and um, renew this this fall. So that's an opportunity for high school students. We're, we've got lots of programs for educators too, but that's one of our main programs we're doing for, it's not just AP European history, we'll probably expand it to AP government and other AP courses or uh, other um, high school courses that would be interested in coming as well. And we can take advantage of Zoom or WebEx because then students can prepare before and have interaction even before they come to Virginia Tech. Something that we didn't, we're not prepared in the pre-COVID situation, but now students know how things can be done and can do things and have negotiations and then come directly to the table for the final vote. So. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. Can help. Uh, I love this. Um, I, I teach middle school and I run our model UN program. And so I would absolutely be interested in even talking to you all about maybe adapting this a little bit for even reaching middle schoolers, because I think that element of dramatic play. Um, that's kind of what we, we call it. It's uh, actually an English term um, that one of my colleagues sort of labeled it as, but it really adds, you know, a personal element to this sort of concept of international diplomacy. And it makes it feel a lot closer to home than when you're talking about it outside of the simulations. And I don't, I'm sure this has happened there, but students get really fired up about these issues, you know, and they, they really can hold on to and attach to their country's viewpoints on things, even if it wasn't what they agreed with prior to going into the simulation. So it's pretty amazing. Um, I'm, that, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Try to complicate it. Uh, I want to discuss with Colin some others. We like to have a crisis for which we have the UN Security Council, NATO, and the European Council meeting. So, you know, uh, we have a, a school representing certain countries, but in three different organizations, meeting in different in different places, probably in different parts of Virginia Tech. But then they have to coordinate things of how they vote and what they decide. So it's becoming even more excited. You can see Yanis is a big picture guy. He's got all these great ideas. <laughs> we got to get the practicalities for high school students. But yes, that, that's a great vision there, definitely. Because if you have more and more students involved, you like you know, to have a very important role to play. So not to be secondary. Dealing with and, numbers. 
And one thing we can do, Sam, because I've actually done this before at a different Jean Monnet Centre, is run a conference for high school educators just on how to simulate and how to run an EU council. So yes, we'll have this thing for our, our students, but we can also have a separate how to do a conference, conference, right, for teachers. And we can definitely do one of those at, at Virginia Tech. I think that would be so valuable because when I was developing our Model United Nations program, the only way that I was able to actually understand how a simulation works is by attending um, a conference and really understanding, you know, the ins and outs of it as an attendee. And I think that because there just aren't those workshops out there. And if they are out there, maybe they're difficult to attend or expensive. So I think that that is a really great idea and is definitely something that teachers would want to take advantage of because I use model UN simulations in my classroom, you know, not, not even we have a program that is after school, but I use it in class to teach historical content because it's just really fun and interactive and collaborative. And it really works on a lot of skills, uh, including, you know, writing, uh, public speaking, all of these things are involved in that. And I am sure that a European council simulation would do exactly those same things. Uh, so, and I'm curious for your program, Colin, do you, is it an after-school program or is it a requirement for your AP Euro students? Uh, well, I'm, a, I'm doing a different one right now that's like a, a, with the EU Parliament, it's a voluntary thing. In the time of COVID, we can't make students do extra work, I'm thinking at the moment. But previously, we've, I have had all my students buy into it and do it. So again, it wouldn't be a required thing, but I did have 100% participation both times. So um, I think it's maybe because I sold it really well and of course, go to Virginia Tech and get a great lunch. And those are all, you know, free pizza. Those are all things students like too. Um, but you could definitely do it for a whole class or for just a portion of your class. Yes. Yeah, I I have also found that the kids are just, uh, we go to William and Mary for their conference. Um, and then we also do Maggie Walker's Model UN conference. And it is so much fun. Um, the kids just love it. And it's also voluntary. And we've had, you know, 90% of our eighth graders sign up to do it every year. It's really amazing. So teachers out there definitely check in to this. So that's amazing. I can't believe all, all of that happened. We didn't even talk about this beforehand. And I did not, I, even though I looked you up, Colin, I did not know that you had been doing this program with Giannis. So that is so extraordinary. Um, that's, that's amazing. It's one of the joys of education, isn't it? You start in one thing and you get a serendipitous expansion into different direction. And but right now, one of the things I'm doing at my school is we're doing a, a Bridge the Pond event. And Yanis is involved with this a little bit too, with a school in Ireland, in Dublin, Ireland. And we're doing an interactive um, collaboration. Um, there's 18 students in my school and 18 in, in the school in Dublin. Um, and that's run by the EU Parliament. That's a thing that we could also build upon at, at the Jean Monnet Centre at Virginia Tech too. Yeah, how did you get connected with that school? And uh, how did you all sort of um, find each other? Because that's definitely something I know a lot of our teachers would be interested in. 
All right. Well, I, again, that's an EU delegation in Washington, D.C. thing. They, they approached me about that um, through through Jean Monnet Center. So there are 10. Is that correct, Arthur? Uh, Yanis, 10 Jean Monnet Centers in the United States? Now we're 11. 11. OK, so it's there's not that many delegations and they have a limited staff up there in D.C., but but there is potential to work with them in certain projects and we can help facilitate that at Virginia Tech. The perfect person to, to reach out. Okay, great. Um, so we're sort of getting closer to the end of our discussion here. Um, I, I do think that before we go, um, I both, I want to talk about the challenges facing you going into 2021, but I also kind of want to take us back just a little bit and talk really briefly about Brexit um, and just touch on, you know, why was Brexit so significant and was it significant to the EU? Um, because obviously it's felt significant around the world, you know, it was all on our news for, you know, over a year, it felt like. Um, and in that, I'm sort of wondering uh, if the European Union is kind of this product of globalization, does Brexit sort of reveal Britain's political and economic resistance to that? Or is it more about national identity and just wanting to preserve, uh, you know, that sort of nationalism and kind of, as you all were mentioning, um, trying to preserve themselves as a nation state and seeing themselves as a nation state and um, really trying to sort of forge some separate identity from, for themselves from the European Union. Giannis, did you want to start with that? Yes. <clears throat> uh, why significant? First of all, it's one of the largest or was one of the largest members of the European Union. Not only as it was one uh, important military power, great power. So if you lose one of your biggest uh, members, uh, it's a loss, you know. Um, but also uh, we, we should see Brexit, not in isolation, but in connection with some other dynamics developing in Europe at the same time. Populism was very much related to Brexit and the referendum in England. But populism was developing in other parts of Europe at the same time. But it was not only the only thing. The financial crisis were around. So having Britain like to withdraw, having the refugee crisis increasing, you know, nationalism and the protection of borders, right-wing parties coming to power, inability to deal with financial crisis, all of this come together. So having Britain leaving the union, there was also a fear of the dominant effect. What about if somebody else leaves? And what about if a third state leaves? So far, this has, has not happened, but that was a fear too. Was the fear uh, equal to for everybody? Not really. Some other people thought, oh, okay, uh, that was the country that had always uh, privileges within the union, because as a big country negotiating everything, getting everything they wanted, 
in order to be around. So there was no reason for them to complain so much. So if, you, if they are not happy with that, what else can be done? Euro European Union should be able to move on for any, and everybody else can go out, that's fine. Others still had the idea of, oh, UK, the American factor in Europe. So one problem less. So, you know, there are different approaches, but in my opinion, you know, leaving, losing a, a large member has important consequences, but has also consequences for the U United Kingdom itself, for its domestic politics, for its possible uh, ter territorial sovereignty. We don't know what is going to happen with Scotland uh, down the road. There was the Scottish referendum and they stay within the kingdom because of the European Union. But if there's no European Union, then what? We don't know how, we hope everything will be fine with Ireland. Um, but also people will say in reality, not only there were exceptions, but if the United Kingdom had problems, is the responsibility of the UK government to go to the European Council and object. That's why they have the veto power. So, you know, uh, that's part of the politics, but you know, it's very easy in the European Union that had to deal with many different issues at the same time to be very effective and very fast in dealing with different cases. And that's not happens easily in politics. So that's a combination of factors here. That's the reality. Mm. And something else we have, don't forget. Uh, populism spoke about the new empire, going back to the Commonwealth and recreating the empire. That's great, you know. Uh, in Hungary, they forgot to speak about the Europeans. Now they try to change history, tell the great nation comes from Central Asia, from the Khans. You know, you create a kind of history but can you do it? The British Navy was not what it used to be when the empire was there. So, but people like to hear that, you know, and they don't know the details. Colin, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, it's hard for me just to add a few things because this is a very personal issue for me because I'm British. Um, so on January 31st of last year, when Britain finally left the EU, although the withdrawal agreement kind of ended this December 31st. Last January, I lost my citizenship, which means that my kids can't go to university in France or Germany or um, and the rights to travel as an EU citizen, you know, are I've lost. Um, so it's uh, I have family lives in France and they moved there and and now their health care is up in the air. And, you know, so um, it's uh, it's a very personal issue because there are so many uh freedoms that European citizens kind of take for granted that I think people in Britain are going to start to notice that they didn't notice before. Uh, so many practical day-to-day -day privileges of being a EU citizen. Um, and it's just it's sad to me as a, a, a person from Scotland, because of course most of Scotland voted to stay in the EU and it was the majority in England who voted to leave, that um, one of the effects, one of the, the, the whole premises of the uh, Brexiteers was to take back control of the UK. But like Giannis has just mentioned, one effect of Brexit might be to split up the UK, not take back control of it, but to end it. Um, because Ireland already has, even from a few days ago, has a different economic relationship now 
from the rest of Britain because Ireland's still in the common market. Um, and the rest of Scotland, England, and Wales are, are not. So there's already two tier system within the UK. It's pushing a closer Northern Ireland and Ireland uh, unification. And I just double checked the numbers just recently that the number of people who want to vote for Scottish independence is now 58%. Before Brexit, there was a 2014 referendum. It was 45 to 55 against, right? So it's gone up from 45 to 58 in the last few years. So clearly that's a majority. So if there is a second referendum allowed and the Scottish National Party is pushing for that, then we could find an independent Scotland. Um, which wouldn't automatically get straight back into the EU. That's a bit of a fallacy there. Personally, I wouldn't be in favor of the, of the UK breaking up, but um, it, Brexit is a very sad and very personal issue for me. Yeah, I think it's, it, it's really um, illuminating, I think, for you to share that because, you know, in the States, I think it, it doesn't, it was hard for us, I think, to wrap our minds around the idea that it was a day, it would have day-to-day -day effects, you know, on people. Um, because we, at least I, saw it more as an economic, a political move, maybe a nationalistic move. And, but it really does have, you know, these tremendous, but also very small effects on citizens. Um, so, uh, that is definitely uh, enlightening to hear you say that. Like you, you mentioned your dog earlier, you, you can no longer, as pet owners, take your dog on holiday to Europe. Now you've got to have all sorts of visas and requirements and vaccination proof and uh, quarantine time. And before a, a person going to Spain could take their animal, it would be easier to do that. But now, I mean, that's a, a very much small thing, but it's very, Britain's a nation of animal lovers. So that's just one tiny practical issue that, it's just it's, it's been called the world's messiest divorce and it's still being negotiated all the details and the big picture is done but the day-to-day -day negotiations are actually still continuing and in these many small issues like that and not to forget the thousands of british citizens working for the european union that they had to leave brussels and go back to uk and there was concerns, what if I jobs? How many jobs will be there to absorb all of these people? Mm, that's, it's so interesting to just to think about um, the reaction of the European countries to Brexit. So was there, you mentioned that it's, you know, been called the world's messiest divorce. Is there a lot of bitterness um, among Europeans about this um, or are, you know, are they happy to see the UK leave? I would imagine not simply because like you mentioned, Giannis, it's, you know, such a, it was such a huge part of the European Union. Um, but is there any sort of lingering bitterness um, among Europeans about Brexit? You know, different countries, different governments, different political parties have different approach. So there's no uniformity here. As I said, some people yeah, thought, yeah, we cannot continue like that. So it's better to have less members, even losing a big me uh, large member, instead of not being able to do things. Um, 
if you are friends, then you are happy. If you could say, we're right from the beginning, we should have never let them in. So, you know, different people say different things. There's no uniformity. There is a general puzzlement, though, I would say, amongst most Europeans, sort of in the way they look at the United States, there's a general puzzlement of how, how could you do that? Kind of like, you know, same, how could you elect Trump? What's going on? You know, there's a there's a uh, unawareness of the British political system, just like there's a general un- lack of full understanding about U.S. political system, too. Um, but there are countries, as Janice is hinted at there, who are in the EU who are sad to see the British go as well, because if you're a free trade, um, promoting um, lessening of tariffs, um, countries like the Nordic countries, you know, the Netherlands, right? Um, you've lost one of your big champions of, of tariff reduction and, and liberal economic liberalism. Um, and now it's harder for you to fight against um, the more centralizing state control of France, perhaps, right, or Germany. Um, so, yes, there are definitely countries who will feel more of a loss of the EU than others. Hmm. But again, this, you know, whether the Trump administration on Brexit are things that the Europeans have to take into account and see how it goes. Uh, doesn't mean necessarily that uh, down the road they will not find ways to continue collaborating. Okay, uh, probably will not be members, but there will be something you know uh, very close to. Right, and so we just entered this new year, twenty twenty one, and you know we have a vaccine now for COVID. Thankfully, uh, it is currently being administered, you know, across the world. So what sort of challenges are really facing the EU this year? And uh, kind of where do you all see the EU going um, as an organization this year? Well, still COVID is around and we have the mutations too. So let's hope that things will be eventually all right. Uh, but also COVID brings it economic issues, both from within the European Union as well as outside the European Union. The whole world economy has been affected. Uh, Instability in the European's periphery still there. So things are not settled. Plus we we had uh, even what we call frozen conflicts that came into existence, Nagorno-Karabakh, for instance, a few months, ago, a few weeks ago, uh, one of the most violent conflicts recently. So, the, you know, there will be enough issues to deal with. Not to mention the continuation of the involvement of Russia, the connections between Russia and different political parties in Europe. Uh, threats to critical infrastructure and cybersecurity. So there are plenty of things to do. Uh, I don't think we'll be very bored in 2021. Yeah, the, the EU definitely wants to promote like a third way, and I guess, between economic superpower of China and economic superpower of the United States. Europe is as big an economic power and world's largest free trade area. 
So, it, but it doesn't want to follow everything the United States does. It doesn't always uh, fall into exactly the same um, views uh, and political actions. So it wants to create somewhat of a uh, third way there, but it definitely realizes that it's, as Giannis mentioned, it's Europe's near abroad, like Russia, Turkey, and the, and the Middle East, North Africa, is in a state of turmoil and kind of authoritarianism. And Europe, the EU's always finding it difficult to know quite what to do with those areas. And that's actually more problematic for Europe than China, which is more, a bit more distant economic deals with China, but we can stand up to China in terms of we promote liberalism and pluralism and they don't. So we, we can have a more common policy towards the Chinese, but it's actually more difficult for Europe to have a common policy towards Russia, for example. And if you're Germany and you're getting all your gas through Nord Stream, it, you know, there's economic ties that it'd be hard to have as many sanctions, for example, as the United States is putting on Russia. So, um, yeah, Europe's going to uh, have continuing struggles to deal with in the future here. But the fact that they're coming together and got this common debt uh, issuing by the Commission, and they're tying that to the rule of law, that Europe is seeing itself more and more as standing up for um, kind of liberal Western values. I think that's that's going to be a common theme we're going to see throughout this year. And it's even bringing its own wayward nations, member states like Hungary and, and Poland into, into check in a sense. And it's, it's trying to um, tie its foreign policy or at least its economic policy to some extent with a value system that it promotes, right? liberal democracy. So I think that's a positive step. Well, I like ending on a positive note. So I think that uh, that's kind of a good place to, to sort of wrap up here. Uh, thank you both so much for being on this episode. I mean, just an incredible amount of information for us all to digest. Uh, I know I've learned so much just from talking to you these couple of hours and I can't wait to try to get connected with you all at the Jean Monnet Center um, and Virginia Tech. And I know uh, all of our teachers who are listening will feel the same. So Colin and Giannis, before we go, are there any other projects or events that you're working on right now that you wanna mention before we leave today? Uh... My first priority is to make sure that uh, the new center uh, is well-structured, has uh, a roof, and starts being fully operational in, in August, September. Uh, there's lots of work to do, uh, but I'm very happy because there are colleagues like Colin who are very energetic, very, uh, very committed, uh, so I think everything would be great. Uh, we continue things that we started already with Colin and we try to expand. Um, outreach and education are important things for the center. So K-12 students and educators are, you know. Uh, but again, I have Colin and I'm very, I'm honored and it's a great pleasure for me to working with him. And he will be the person that you can reach out to him for anything you need. Yeah, and I think we're hoping to have a website up in the next month or so, and there we, then we can promote um, our programs there. But we are having a webinar on March 17th, um, 
that's going to be our first kind of K through 16 webinar. And it's going to be on transatlantic relations, the kind of how that's still important today between the EU and the US. Um, we're having, uh, like I'm saying, in the fall, we're hoping to have our face-to-face -face events start again. And we're going to have a conference uh, later in the fall at Virginia Tech for Virginia educators. So look for that. It'll be, probably be a Saturday uh, lunchtime through Sunday lunchtime. Um, so we get to stay overnight and there's funding we have for that. And, and we'll have all these excellent colleagues that Yanis mentioned uh, from our various departments speak. Um, and then Yanis and I are actually presenting in December at the National Council for Social Studies in, in DC at their at the 100th, 100th anniversary, I guess it's postponed a year conference. And, and it is about our simulation, our EU simulation that we do. And of course, we'll mention the center and other things that we do as well. So those are the things that are in stone at the moment, but there will be other things that we add throughout the year. So we're excited about this. this yeah, because we have uh, people with very good ideas and already calling space with them and that would be good. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're linking up with the Virginia Geographic Alliance as well. We're, we're sending one of our professors to one of their conferences in Richmond, University of Richmond in, in October. So, you know, we're open to collaboration with all, it doesn't have to be uh, history teachers, but we're open to collaboration with all sorts of educators uh, across Virginia. Well, that is excellent. We will be sure to not only link all of those opportunities in our show notes, but VCSS will be sure to uh, propagate all of those activities on our webpage so that um, all of our members can uh, start signing up for these amazing events that you all are hosting. Um, well, thank you both so much again for speaking with me today. And listeners, don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And if you like today's episode, subscribe and give us a five-star review on iTunes as it helps others find our podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on Content to Classroom.